Thank you for coming out on a 30-degree weather. I wore my hoodie tonight because I have my mama's blood, which is thin blood, so I'm always cold, but it's going to be good. Let's jump into it. I I pray you're going to be stirred tonight. Here's some things we've been saying. We're nine weeks in, and this has been the premise of it all, that revival is God's expectation of position. So as we've said all along, revival is not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not an experience. It's a positioning. It's God moving humans out from under their own wisdom and up under His wisdom. And then we said this last week, that revival is an awakening of conscience by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, empowerment that advances God's kingdom to His glory. So revival is shifting you out from your own thinking, your own wisdom, up under God's wisdom and God's thinking, And then what that does is awaken your conscience, that you are awakened that there is a whole other world out there, a spirit world, a kingdom that is working, a government, a father, a freedom that we're called into. And one thing we said about the awakening of conscience is oftentimes we're saying, when is God going to bring revival? When will God move? And we're saying this, that many times God is always moving, He's always working, but our conscience is dead to it. We don't expect it. We don't receive it. We don't launch out and put our faith to it to see it happen. Here is the graphic we've been using that this internalized green area that we call the church is the positioning. If you want to know what revival is, it's God positioning people into His church. And by church, we mean global church, the body of Christ, but every church that is local, still serves a kingdom purpose. So revival is awakening in the people of the church to God's government, His expectations, His purpose, and His results. And then we take that into the world. And as we've seen in the weeks past, the world comes in and gets born again, and the system of witnessing and sharing and growing together becomes what we would call revival. Revival is not, remember we, we made a comment, the revival is not just filling the church up and going, come out every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday because we're having some really cool services. Revival is an awakening of God's people. And, but the typical thing is when they awaken, you do see supernatural things begin to happen. God begins to stir and do miracles and we see that even going on what we see at Pastor Jensen's church over at Free Chapel It's been going over a week now. Let's jump into a thought for tonight because I want to talk to you about five things that hinder uh, revival happening, the five hindrances to revival. And then we're going to pray over those things because as big as God is, how many of you know humans can hinder the move of God? And I don't want to hinder the move of God. I know you don't want to hinder it. So I want to open your thinking to a concept and then challenge us all. Here it is, Acts 2.42. All the believers, say that with me. All of them devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and prayer. So one thing we can denote is that there's an expectation on every person in the room that God God expects the same thing out of everybody in the room, regardless of where we are, how mature we are, or what we think. There is a systematic expectation to be under a teaching, to be fellowship, 
to share meals together. I joke about it a lot, but it is a biblical thing to sit down and have a meal with someone, to take communion together, and then prayer. It goes on to say this, though, verse 46 of Acts 2. They worshiped together at the temple every day, and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added, and this is probably what we would call revival, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those that are being saved. Here's what we would have to think about this. It is a, it is a far cry different way of doing ministry than how we do it now, 2,000 years removed. Because 2,000 years removed, we're probably not meeting every day in the temple. We're busy, we've got our life, and so we've narrowed it down to one day, and that one day is typically one hour, maybe two. And so when we say, wonder why revival's not happening, probably the better question is not why it's not happening on the one day, one hour we gather, but why isn't God using us the other six days of the week? Because there's a lot more room out there for God to work. But in the thinking many times of American Christianity, we worship together one day a week. And then we do meet in homes. We call them here B groups. We meet in homes. And then a great joy and generosity. I think there's something, we won't go there tonight, but very supernatural that when a body of people has great joy and generosity, you'll fill it up. People want to hang out with joyful people. People don't want to hang out with people who are sour pusses and look miserable. But you get the joy of the Lord in the building. You get the generosity of God on God's people. You can fill a building up. And then it says God added to them. They praised God together. And then this, all the believers, and this is where it gets tricky. And this is what I want to talk about tonight. All the believers, there's the word again, an expectation, were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. And this becomes the challenge. The challenge of doing this together in a church and joining together and saying, let's go touch the world or, or let's believe that God's going to move or let's pray for revival here on this corner. And... The real challenge is about the time God moves, you better believe that this united in heart and mind is going to be challenged. Do we think alike? Is what's important to me important to you and is what's important to you important to other people? Because to be united in heart and mind, we better find a commonality of value. And if we're going to be united in heart and mind, we better come to an agreement of what we all in the room think is the most important. And if you want to ruin the work of God, just let everybody start having an opinion of what heart and mind should be. And I've been in it uh, quite a while, and I can say from experience that many times we argue over what's the most important thing to do. So people who love worship want to know, why don't we worship more? And people who love prayer want to know, why aren't we praying more? And people who love evangelism want to know, why doesn't anybody go in the streets and evangelize? And people who love missions are going, why don't we ever take a mission trip? And people who love giving go, why, don't, why doesn't he ever talk about money? And people that love discipleship go, why don't we have more people coming to Wednesday night to grow? Or being people who love small groups say, I don't know why so many people aren't in small groups. So if we're not careful, we take the individuality of what's very important and we make that the main thing. 
And so if I'm not careful, I can make the main thing the main thing, and it should never be the main thing because it's my thing. And so to be united in heart and mind is almost an impossibility unless everybody in the gathering of believers decides what is the main thing. And then everything else just is under that. And so it it is a challenge to do it because, as I said, without sounding crass, I don't mean to be crass, but every church has what they're good at. It's why we're so unique. We all have what we're good at. Uh, Some are great at missions, some are great at worship, some are great at teaching. And some, I guess, could be great at all of it. But the typical uh, size church, average size church, is good at something. And if we're not careful, we'll take the thing they're good at and nitpick the things they're not good at. Because that's what I think they should do. It would be like me coming into your home with your children and telling you how me and Robin raised them and you should raise them like me and Robin. And then we nitpick the bedtime. We nitpick that you give them lucky charms. We nitpick everything we do. But if we could come together as fathers and mothers and say, well, it's very important that you're consistent, whatever, you, we have to find the balance. So this is what I've written out. I took that the commonality of all of us is teaching fellowship, sharing meals, and prayer. It's the common things that just have to be important to all of us. I'm teaching on music singing this Sunday, and it is a very interesting thought that very rarely in the New Testament is singing even mentioned. It, it, it didn't seem to be part of the Uh, you know, the foreground of the early church. So today we make it the main thing. We, We sing four or five songs and we'll sing for an hour and we call it the worship set or whatever. But these things are very important. Submit to the teaching, the fellowship, the meals, and the prayer. And then the challenge becomes this. We go out into the homes. So this is where we start on in our 50 feet. And then that is supposed to produce great joy and generosity. So that if it's all working well, we've got a church that's owning their 50 feet. We have people meeting in homes, sharing Jesus. We have people that are working heart and mind for good teaching, for fellowship, for prayer. And then if we're all doing that together... There should be great joy and generosity, and we could go home and go, that's the romance. But how many of you know that's about as romantic as a man and a woman get married, and they're wonderfully happy, and then realizing about a year later, they got to learn to grow together, and they've got to learn to get along, and they've got to learn to argue, and they've got to learn to fight for the right things. So it becomes a challenge, and it's a challenge not because we're going to factor in spiritual warfare. It's a challenge because we have people. And and I don't know if you know this, people are challenging. We've joked before, I wonder why we can't pastor Labrador Retrievers. We have to pastor humans. And humans bite and humans gossip and humans can be rude and mean and crass. At the same time, God chose us. He chose humans. He wants to work with us. So if we're going to say revival, we have to learn how to let this work. We have to learn. And so what I'd like to share tonight is how do we let this work Where I've landed my heart, and I want you to hear my heart because I think it's important that you understand what I'm fighting for that's important to me and Robin so that we can go, okay, let's get on the same page and we can pray this thing out. 
And this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the awakening of conscience to personal kingdom mission. Because this is where the arguing comes in. This is where the frustrations come. Because my belief is that everybody in the room should be on a kingdom mission. It's not your, this, I don't mean this rude. You're not here for you. You're here for a bigger kingdom. You're here for His glory. You're here for His passions and His service. But in that global, there is the personal. Everybody in the room has a personal kingdom mission. Now, if we're not careful, and I'll talk about these. I don't want to belabor it because I'll get to them and talk about all of them. If I'm not careful, I can muddy the two. And I can make Mark's personal kingdom mission bigger than God's kingdom mission. And I can lose sight of what God is trying to do. But I want to say this. Everybody in the room tonight has a personal kingdom mission. You're here on the planet for a reason. You're needed. You bring a flavor to the ice cream. You, you bring something that we need. We need the extroverts and the introverts. We need the teachers and the pastors. We need the prophets and the evangelists. We need the people that are analytical. We need the process people. We need the visionaries. I joke all the time about me and Robin being so different, but we make an incredible team because she's very analytical and I'm very like, yeah, we can take the world over today. And we have to work together. And uh, that's why we brought Phil when we hired Phil and brought him up here to be part of the team. He saw the vision of the church I see and said, I want to be part of making that happen. And he called me on the phone and said, I came to the church I see when you launched the vision of your church and God spoke to Alicia and I that we're to move up and we're to help you take the church I see into the whole world. We're to help you get this here globally. So that's his personal kingdom mission of being up here. And I want to teach you how this works because to me, both are very important. God's kingdom mission is utmost important but you play a part in it, and I want to teach us how to get there. Here's the question. The question is, what are you doing with your life? Not what is the church doing. What are you doing? And I have had, I could probably write three or four books on all my counseling and talks and encouragements with people who say, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what my calling is. I don't know what my purpose is. No, I, I've seen people drop out of church because nobody called me. Nobody needed me. I couldn't find where I fit. I, I, got, I got in church and then I got my feelings hurt and so I, I, I don't do anything. I just wait on Jesus to return. And so this becomes the challenge and then that challenge is out into the world as, as nice as I can be, you're never going to blend in with the world. You're always going to look different. Now, the reason I changed the colors on us is the typical thinking is all the red are the Christians and we're all the same and we're not. Sam, I pick on him a lot, but he and Tony can touch a different group of people than I could touch because they have stories I don't have. My mother is very gifted at 
talking to religious people about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because her testimony of being a Methodist and bumping into the Holy Spirit, she connects in other ways. I have a great way to connect with people who are religious and and questioning why is God still important because I grew up in it. I understand rednecks and religion. I got them down pat. I do them really well. But everybody in the room will ultimately have to answer, what am I doing here? So if I could ask you to turn your paper over, I would like you in one sentence or a couple of words to write down your mission statement for your life. What is your mission statement? Why do you get up every morning for God's prayer? And it can be your own purpose, I don't care. But why do you get up every morning? Is it just to pay the bills? Is it just because I've got a mortgage due? Is it because the kids are counting on me and I need to get out of bed, feed them some cereal? What is your life mission? If you stood before Jesus today, could you say, I have accomplished what He asked me to do? My life was used for Him and His glory, and I worked the best I could to help His kingdom move forward. What is your life mission? As you ponder that, I'll share with you, when I was asked this question, I couldn't come up with a sentence because I had so much in my mind that I thought I was good at, so much in my mind that I wanted to accomplish, I never could hone it down to really be able to measure it. I was just busy about a lot of stuff. And this came years and years ago, probably 20 plus years ago, we were meeting over in what is that now the cafe, it was the fellowship hall when mom and dad were here. And we were going around the room asking, what is your personal mission? There was a group of pastors there. And they said, we want you to name the top three things of your mission in life. Let's go around the room. So everybody's going around the room. Well, I, 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 and this, this, this. We came to my dad. And we got to my dad, and I thought, well, I'm interested to hear what he says. Dad said, well, number one, God has called me to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Number two, God has called me to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And number three, God has called me to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. How many of you know what God's called him to do? Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So every time he would go to bed, he didn't have to look at how many numbers are coming. He had to ask one question, did I equip the saints for the work of the ministry? So I ask you, can you summarize your life mission in a sentence? If I said, what has God asked you to do? And if you asked me, I would give it this way. I would say, God has called me to build His kingdom through relationship and discipleship. I don't just like people to see faces. I like to know people. I love people. That's what I shared with Phil today. I said, because Phil has taken so much work off my plate, it allows me to do the two things I'm good at. Love people and teach the Bible. I love that. That's my life's calling. My life's calling is to love people. That means you'll see me sitting at Johnny's Pizza with people. You'll see me driving to Ackworth to have pizza with somebody to talk to them about the Lord. I don't feel like that's a waste of my life. And at the same time, I come here and teach. I hope you like it. I try to put effort to it. I try to make it meaningful. But I love it. It's my passion. All right? But the problem becomes when I find that myself becomes hindered. Let me give it to you real quick. So 
The twelve, Acts 6-2, called a meeting of all the believers and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the Word. We don't want to run a food program. And so the brothers selected seven men that were respected and full of the Spirit and wisdom and said, well, we'll give them the responsibility and then we can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word. But the Lord said, this is Acts 9 now. I'm giving you several passages together. But the Lord said to Saul, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as to the people of Israel. And then in Galatians 2, Paul shows up to Peter and Paul says this, Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. So with those three passages of Scripture, I'll run back and just show them to you real quickly. What we see in the book of Acts when the early church started is the way God would do the kingdom is He would assign responsibilities to different people. Nobody was ever intended to do the same thing. And in this, some seemingly are more anointed or more called or gifted than others because it would seem if just on the surface that the people that teach are far greater than the people that set up tables. But if the people that set up tables or Marlene who makes the coffee in the kingdom is just as important as the people that are doing the other ministry. Because you just let Marlene show up one day and have bad coffee and watch how bad the whole day goes. Right? I mean, this is what they're dealing with. People are mad about food. And so what they have to do is they have to get it together and they assign responsibilities. And Saul says, well, God chose me to go to the Gentiles and the Jews and then says, well, to Peter, God chose me, gave me a responsibility to go to the Gentiles and gave Peter the responsibility of going to the Jews. And then said, in fact, James, Peter, and John were known as pillars of the church. They recognized that God had given me that gift and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers, Galatians 2.9, They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued to work with the Jews. And this to me, this one sentence of a passage of Scripture in Galatians 2 becomes the difficulty of local church because we cannot come to the agreement to encourage each other to do different things. We want everybody to do the same thing. And if they don't do my thing, I'm mad. And I often tell people, if there's something burning in your heart and you come to me and go, Pastor Mark, this is burning in my heart, don't get mad at me if it doesn't burn in my heart. Because I can't take your responsibility upon my shoulders. I stand in front of God for me. But as a good shepherd, I want to stir you to do it and equip you to do it. We call it owning your 50 feet. You own yours, I own mine. If we all do that, we will accomplish the kingdom. Now here comes the hindrances. There's five of them that I've noticed over my 30 plus years of pastoring that make or break a church doing what God wants them to do. Number one, you lose sight of the big picture. And you make it very personal and emotional. You make it about me. We all have to start out that the big picture is Him, not you. And you will get your feelings hurt somewhere along the way. Before we go through the other four, just know that sometimes you'll lose sight of the big picture. And you'll think it's about you and your thoughts and your feelings. And 
I'm not saying none of us are important, but I'm saying we have to keep the big picture the picture. It's Jesus and His kingdom. And so if you get your feelings hurt, apologize. If somebody hurts you, say you're sorry. Move on. We've got a kingdom to run. We don't have time to just sit around and pout. But I will tell you this, from my perspective, there's a lot of people that are sitting idle today because their small picture overrode God's big picture. They got their feelings hurt. They got burnt. They got abused. They got used. They got disappointed. And they lost sight of the kingdom picture. And so now it's their personal picture. And there's a lot of idle Christians just sitting around. We call it deconstructing. They lost sight of the bigger picture. Number two, you lose respect with other believers. It's very hard to do kingdom work when we don't respect each other. It says that they had earned respect. He said, look out among you and find seven men that have earned the respect of the believers. This is something we don't talk about a lot, but it's hard to lead people when you lose respect. And you would be amazed at what causes people to lose respect. One of the things that irritates me that causes me to lose respect is being late. I cannot stand lateness. That's my father's fault. Blame him. I just don't like late. I like starting on time. I like being on time. Five minutes early is on time. But if you're not careful, you can show up an hour late, 40 minutes late, which is fine. We all give grace. But after about nine months of showing up late, you lose a little respect for people. Or people that show up sporadically and not consistently, you can lose respect. Or telling people you'll do something and then you don't follow through, you can lose respect. So there, it, we could just go forever on why we lose respect, but we need to be careful that we guard it for ourselves. Because what we think about each other, let's don't be too hardcore, what we think about each other matters. I try to be very transparent that I is a human and I do have my quirks, but that should never just make me go, well, it doesn't matter if you respect me or not because you should respect me as a leader. I should respect you. And we, which is why I try to start on time and end on time. It's not that I don't appreciate the Holy Spirit. It's that I appreciate the parents that bring their kids. I appreciate the nursery workers. So do you have respect or have you lost respect? Number three, I kind of mentioned this before, but a little deeper. You think your responsibility is the big picture. And this is what frustrates many people. As I said it a moment ago, you take what's in your heart and you want everybody else to be as passionate about it as you. And they won't be. I've had people say, well, God put this in my heart and I just think we all need to pray. I'm just going to pick prayer. And we all just need to pray. I can't believe nobody prays. I can barely get a few people to pray, only a handful to pray. I just don't understand the body of Christ and why they don't pray. And then we get very hurt because I, I lose responsibility of the bigger picture. And I think my responsibility, look, just do you. And if five people pray, then five people can bring the kingdom of God to pass. But if we want the whole church to pray, they're not. The whole church is probably not going to pray. It's why God anoints certain people to push something through the kingdom. 
Not everybody's going to do a small group. Not everybody is going to be at the same place. But when we get our feelings hurt that, well, I think we should go into Atlanta and do evangelism. And I'm like, great, go do it. But that's not something God put on my heart. And then we think, well, if you're a preacher, you should want to do evangelism. And I'm like, well, it's not like I don't want to do evangelism, but I would never even go to bed if I did everything everybody thinks I should do. I would never even sleep. I would do evangelism and somebody, well, we need a puppet ministry. Yep, puppet ministry. Got to have a puppet ministry and then get that going. And, then, and I did that in the early years. My early years was taking everybody's idea, making it my own to the point I nearly killed myself. And then the people that had the idea to evangelize never even showed up. They just thought I should do it. And I'm like, oh, I can't live this way. And that's when I prayed and said, God, what should I do? And that's when the revelation of 50 feet came. I'm just responsible for my picture, not yours. But I'm passionate about yours. And I want to help you do yours too. All right? Number four, you think your responsibility is meaningless. It's not. Don't ever think your 50 feet is not needed. It can, the devil will beat you up that you're not important and your idea is not important and nobody showed up and nobody caught fire. I've had several people in the past say, this is what God told me to do. And then they do it and then they don't get 40 people that are excited. They got two that were excited and then they just go, well, see, it just either people aren't ready for it or nobody supported me and nobody cared and then suddenly it's meaningless and now I'm not doing anything. But I will say this to you, everybody in this room has meaning. You're important to the kingdom of God. You're important to the kingdom of God. But let's not put your meaning on me and my meaning on you. You do you well and own your 50 feet. And the final one is this. I'm going to ask Victoria, Kate to come up and Belle to come up. You get discouraged doing your responsibility. You get discouraged. Now those five things are 33 years of counseling people, people that have lost sight of the big picture and quit, stopped coming to church, no longer give, no longer serve. I've had to counsel people that have lost respect and go, I don't know why that people don't do this or that. And I think, well, we can't lose respect of people. You were crass. I had somebody say one time, well, I used to go to that group. Well, why don't you go to that group anymore? And they said, because the leader is just so arrogant. Every time I try to say something, it's always wrong. I'm always wrong. They're always right. I don't want to go there. So what do you have to do? Call the leader. Hey, I know you're passionate, but you're losing respect. Your passion is causing people not to respect you. I was leading a group of young adults one time and they all love Jesus, but every other weekend they're all getting drunk. And I'm like, okay, you know, I, I'm glad you love Jesus and you're free, but the fact that you all go out together after church and get drunk or tipsy, you're losing respect of people. Because I'm not saying you're going to hell for having a beer or two, but over time you're out there and other people are trying to filter into your group and they're sitting around watching all of you just sit around and drink beers and get half tipsy together. You're losing respect, and they've called me and said they don't want to go back. So if we're not careful, even what Paul said, sometimes your freedom can cause other people.
to lose respect. All right, let's look at that one more. You, you think your responsibility is the bigger picture. It's why a lot of times people will leave churches and split churches and go because I take the small thing and make it the main thing. Number four and five. You think your responsibility is meaningless. It never is. And then you get discouraged doing it. Nobody cares. Nobody supports me. It doesn't matter if I died tomorrow. And I'm telling you tonight, everybody in this room matters. Everybody has a mission and everybody has a purpose. As we sing and worship, here's what I want us to pray. Heavenly Father, awaken us to see the bigger picture of your kingdom. Awaken the conscience of every believer to see the significance of their calling and responsibility, both personally and corporately. If you'll bow your heads, I want to pray for you.